Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. That's our passage we'll be looking at today, Genesis chapter 3. Here's the key concept for this morning. The promise of Christmas extends as far as the curse is found. You recognize those familiar words. This Advent, we're focusing on some of the songs of Christmas each Sunday, kind of looking at the songs that we sing, asking the question, what do the songs really teach us, uh, the songs of Christmas? And this morning, we're focusing on the song that we sang in, in three ways, the beginning of our worship set, and that is, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. Power when we had gone astray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. We don't really know that much about this particular song. We know that it was uh, around in the 1650s already. However, the words were very different than those words you're used to singing. But our version of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen was uh, in use by 1843. And the reason we know that for sure is because that is when Charles Dickens wrote the story of Scrooge in his work, The Christmas Carol. And at some point in that story, you'll remember, there are carolers out in the street, and this is the song that they're singing. So it was in circulation by 1843, for sure. I sing it every year. Probably you sing it every year. But I need to tell you that up until now, I have been singing the song wrong. And I have been misunderstanding the song. And my mistake in my misunderstanding has to do with punctuation. You see, punctuation matters. If you get punctuation wrong, it can have some serious effects. I have some slides, a couple of slides I want to show you of punctuation. Let's eat, kids. Let's eat, kids. Those are two different things, right? Punctuation matters. Let me show you the next slide. This is from a, a store, toilet only for disabled elderly pregnant children. <laughs> what? This must be the cleanest bathroom in the world. N nobody qualifies to use this bathroom. Punctuation would be helpful. And punctuation matters in this song as well. Because up until now, I had always thought that this was a song about married gentlemen resting. But no. Punctuation or intended punctuation tells a different story. It, it should read, God rest ye merry, comma, gentlemen. In other words, Mary describes the rest, not the gentleman. And it turns out that rest Mary was a phrase that was used in Shakespearean times. It, in fact, Shakespeare includes it in two of his plays, the play As You Like It and the play Romeo and Juliet, Rest Mary. It's kind of like saying rest happy. We might say today rest easy or relax. So relax, gentlemen. There's nothing for you to dismay. dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. But the piece that I want to look at in the phrase of that, of that song is to save us from Satan's power. I often refer to Christmas as a rescue mission. Whether you are a gentleman or a gentlewoman, you can rest merry because there are tidings of great joy because Jesus came to undo 
what Satan has done and what we have brought on ourselves. 1 John 3, 8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That is a great Christmas verse. Christ was born to save us from Satan's power. And we need to make sure we understand what we're talking about in terms of what we have been saved from because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it all begins back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. So I'd invite you to follow along as I read Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 2. It says this, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the passage of Scripture where we see the fall of humankind into sin. And as we read this passage of Scripture, not only do we come to understand our own history and our own experience, but we come to understand the eternal plan of God the plan for our rescue. You see, God has always known that if He creates people and invests free will in these people, the capacity to choose whether good or bad, the possibility of choosing bad will occur. He's always known that it did occur. He's always seen that it happened. And He's always understood that He would have to make a great sacrifice to bring hope to us. And it begins with this scene in the garden. And it starts in a subtle dissatisfaction that's found in human nature, a dissatisfaction where we chafe at even God-given restraint, even in the midst of paradise, when there's only one piece of restraint given, we chafe against that. This goes to show us the folly of thinking. If only our politics were better. If only our laws were better. If only we had greater legislation, we could somehow fix the problems of the world. No, that will never fix the problems of the world because the problems of the world are within. And the answer is Jesus, not more politics. There was one piece of restraint in the garden. And that restraint was ordered to bless and to protect our ancestor, but it was set aside when the tempter comes. And Eve says to the tempter, to the serpent, uh, Satan in the serpent form, we may not eat of the tree or touch it lest we die. And what you need to understand is God never said you can't touch the tree. Now, I'm not advocating the touching of the tree. I'm not saying they should have gone and touched the tree, but what I'm saying is that Eve has brought that bit in on herself. This is her own addition, her own exaggeration. And what she's betraying in so doing is she's betraying the feeling of restraint, exaggerating her restraint, uh, betraying the fact that deep down she thinks that any restraint is unreasonable. We believe that we ought to have no restrictions and no restraint, and we chafe against any limitation put upon us. It's part of human nature, and Eve betrays that here, and that betrayal gives Satan room to work. 
He sees that Eve somewhat doubts the logic of the command, somewhat doubts the absoluteness of the command. And in that moment, Satan comes with a, uh, a crafty lie. And he says, you will not surely die in verse 4. That's a lie. They're not going to drop dead the minute they eat of the fruit of the tree, but they begin to die right there. And death will enter their experience and by extension our experience. Verse 5, you will have knowledge. Your eyes will be opened. Well, that's partly true. Knowledge will come and did come, but it came with the loss of innocence. It came with a loss of hope. And this is exactly how Satan lies. It's exactly how Satan lies to you. He sprinkles a little truth in on top of the lie in the moment of temptation. And the lie is always the same. You can sin and it really won't matter. Lie. You can sin and there'll be no bad consequences. Lie. And he sprinkles a little truth. It'll feel good. Sure it will at first. It'll be easy. Yes, it's always easy to sin. Nothing has changed. He says the same lies today over and over. And here in the garden, he kicks it all off. Now, you may wonder to yourself, what is the motive for Satan in this situation? Why in the world does he go to all this trouble of tempting our ancestors in this way? And there's a few theories about that. One popular theory is the, what I'll call the misery loves company theory. The theory that says, you know, Satan has read to the, uh, to the end of the book. He knows how this all turns out. He knows he's defeated and he loses. And now he's just wanting to bring as many people down with him as possible. Misery loves company. And maybe that's part of it. Then there's the idea that says Satan is so filled with hate for the Almighty that he wants to destroy what God loves most. And that's you. Humanity. I think there's a lot of truth in that part. But I wonder about something else. I wonder if Satan isn't trying possibly to force God's hand. I wonder if Satan, seeing the great love that God has for humanity, created in his very image, I wonder if Satan's not trying to get a scenario in place where somehow God will wink at sin, let his loved ones off the hook. Like, like the parent who refuses to acknowledge the rotten behavior of their spoiled child. And so are complicit in this child's acting up and acting out. And they say things like, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, they'll grow out of it, that kind of thing. Winking at bad behavior. If Satan could put God in that position, if Satan could get God to, to wink at sin, it would diminish the holiness of God. But Satan didn't understand the value that God places on his own holiness. And Satan did not understand the willingness that God has to suffer himself for his love object, human beings. But Eve heard the temptation. In verse 6 it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And sin and death enters the human experience. Way back in paradise, we had just one boundary, and it was crossed. We had just one restraint, and it was violated. How will God respond? Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? It's interesting to see the response of God to our fall. See, illustrated the love of God for humanity as He comes and He searches for them. He calls out to them. Let's not get the impression that God really doesn't know where they are. But the impression is that God is accustomed to fellowshipping with them in the cool of the day. And on this particular day, Adam and Eve broke the dates. They weren't there, nowhere to be found. Where are you? He's aware where they are, and he's aware what has happened. But I want you to see how God seeks his stained children, and he calls out to him. He searches for his stained children to see if they will come to him as he calls out to them. And he still comes and seeks and searches for his stained children. Every person who has said yes to the love of Jesus Christ, every person who has turned in repentance from their sin and asked by faith that God would apply His grace to their life, that they might be saved, every person who has ever done that has responded to the call of God. Because God is always there first. God is always there prior, and that call comes in the conviction of the Holy Spirit who touches us and say at the hearing of the gospel when we, when we know that forgiveness can be ours, it is the Holy Spirit who touches our heart and says, that's just what you need, and that's the call of God. Every person who's responded to the message of salvation has felt the call of God. God still calls to his stained children out of love. And he calls out to Adam and Eve. And as they meet, Adam confesses to his sin, almost. He confesses, he doesn't take responsibility is what I mean. In verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate. And there you see the very first ever blame shifting. Now, we've gotten very good at that since. We've perfected this art since. But... Adam, he did eat, he confesses he ate, but the woman you gave to me, she's the one who, who gave it to me, and, and it's not my fault. That's the point he's saying. It's really not my fault. I know you're mad, but I'm the victim here. And the woman does the same thing later on, though the serpent was in the garden. See, no one wants to take responsibility for their sin, not at first. No one wants to wear that label, sinner, not at first. I once read a story about D.L. Moody. He was preaching in a setting where that particular place had a, a reputation, and the reputation was people felt free to get up and walk out in the middle of the message. And, you know, that's rude, and Moody didn't want that to happen. And so as he began his comments, he said, today I'm going to order my talk in two parts. The first part is for the sinners. The second part is for the saints. So he preached halfway through, and he said, okay, I'm done speaking to the sinners. Now I'm going to talk to the saints. All of you who are sinners, you can leave. <laughs> Guess what happened? Nobody left, right? Nobody wants to wear that label at first. I read this past week that the Communist Party, when they uh, took over Russia in the Bolshevik Revolution and, and communism came into play, uh, they rewrote the, the Russian Dictionary. And when they came to the word sin, this is how they defined it. Sin, an archaic and bourgeois word denoting the transgression of a mythical divine law. 
See, you can redefine it, or you can deny it, and you can uh, turn away from it, but the truth is, sin is still sin, and sin still kills. That's the result. There's always consequences. And Adam and Eve have confessed their sin, and now God speaks words of confrontation, words of condemnation, words that betray punishment, because punishment is required when we transgress. My mom used to ask me a hard question whenever she, just before she would punish me when I would do something wrong as I was growing up. The hard question was this, are you sorry for what you did or are you sorry that you got caught? Now, that was a hard one because really, I was sorry I got caught, right? I had freely chosen to do whatever it was that I was getting punished for, but I was sorry that I got caught. But if I said that, that would have been bad. <laughs> so I didn't say that. Usually I blubbered something like, well, I don't know, <laughs> you know. You know, just to get off the hook, you see? Because by now, by then, I was a pretty experienced sinner. I could figure things out. But Adam and Eve are not experienced sinners at this point. They are facing the Almighty in a moment of confrontation, and they fold. Genesis 3.13, the Lord said, God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. A little bit of blame shifting, but she gets around to it, and I ate. You see... We are sophisticated sinners by now. We are experienced sinners by now. We are much more willing to play the game. How much does he really know? Maybe I can call my bluff. Maybe I can keep a secret, even from God. We play that game, but there is no secrets. Noel Coward is once said to have played a trick on 20 of the most prominent citizens of London. He sent them all an identical note, unsigned. It said, all is discovered, escape while you can. And all 20 left the city because they had secrets, thinking they could keep them to themselves. We fear exposure. We don't want to be confronted. But I want you to see here that being confronted and exposing ourselves for the sinners that we really are. It is the very best thing that could ever happen to us because it is that exposure that brings repentance. Some of you in this room right now can think back in your life, and if you were really honest, you would say, thank goodness I was caught when I was. Thank goodness I was found out when I was. I can't imagine where I'd be today if I hadn't been caught because being exposed sent me on a new direction, caused me to repent, and now I've been walking in God's grace. Where would I be without that exposure that brought about repentance? Some of you know that's your life story. And so first God exposed their sin and He confronts them and He pronounces condemnation on them. There will be consequences. And if you read the details, there's going to be consequences for the woman. There's going to be consequences for the man. There's going to be consequences for our world. And there's going to be consequences for Satan. Go down to verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl, crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And God is speaking through that serpent to Satan himself. Ever since the snake has represented to us that which is odious, that which is low. If you call someone a snake in the grass, you're not complimenting them, right? And here is where Christmas comes in. You think, you say to yourself, finally. I thought this guy might have forgotten it's Christmas time. <laughs> here is where Christmas comes in. Because as God pronounces the consequences, He immediately lifts the focus to the eternal. He lifts the focus from the dust. And when people are, were at their worst, when human beings are at their worst, we're literally losing paradise in this moment. We see the first glimpse of the rescue, the first glimpse of the gospel. A Savior will come. Satan will be defeated. And God speaks words of hope mingled among the consequences. It comes in an obscure fashion. It's a pointer to the fact that there is already at that moment a plan in place. There has always been a plan in place. In eternity, God has always planned for our rescue. Speaking to Satan, he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You, Satan, will be defeated, but it will come in pain, in a moment of pain. The Savior will experience pain, and there is a glimmer of what's to come. If you get on the highway, Route 5, and you start driving towards Los Angeles, you're going to see a sign that says Los Angeles so, so many miles down the road. But as you get closer and closer and closer to that great city, you begin to see signs that have more detail, more specific signs, specific suburbs, specific areas. This is how you get to the specific uh, regions within Los Angeles. At first, the sign is, is not particularly detailed, but it grows as you get closer and closer. This is the first sign of the, the rescue that Jesus will bring at Christmas. It shows us right here that already a plan was in place. And as you travel through the Bible, those specific details get more and more uh, pronounced. And we understand exactly what he's, he's coming to do. But right here, we learn some important things. Number one, we learn that there will, a retribution will come to Satan and he will be destroyed. We learn, number two, that that retribution will come from a person. He will crush your head. We learn that this person will be the offspring, the seed of a woman. Now, there's a way you can say everybody's the offspring of a woman. But the way that that is phrased is very odd, very unique. It's meant to describe something special. We learn, fourth, the mission of this person will contain suffering. But ultimately, there will be triumph. All of this is in glimmer form here, but it's there nonetheless. It tells us that God already had in His mind and in His heart the fact that God the Son would come as a sacrifice. It was already in the mind and heart of God that His entrance into our world would be a miraculous one through a, a, a virgin birth. We might ask ourselves, why is it important that Jesus would be born of a virgin? Why is it mentioned here and then prophesied later? and fulfilled in Jesus Himself. There is a false rumor about that out there, and it says that in order for Christ to be sinless, 
uh, he had to be born of a virgin because the thought is that original sin, the stain of sin which gives us that inclination towards evil comes from a biological father. There is nothing of that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are tempted. And that would not be the case if he was biologically protected from sin. The point of the virgin birth is this. This is a miraculous life, and it has a miraculous start. This is God doing something miraculous. And the arrival of our Savior is part of the eternal, miracle-powered work that God always knew He would have to do for us to be saved. God didn't just lean down and pick out a nice Jewish boy and say, go do my work. No, God Himself entered in the miracle of Christmas. Not to be repeated, Jesus is totally unique through and through, and God always had this in mind. He always knew that there would be a bloody battle for the soul of humanity. He always knew that He would triumph, but He always knew that it would be suffering. And yet, God the Son came because of God's great love for humanity. See, Satan underestimated the depth of God's love. Satan didn't understand that God would be willing to suffer because of his love for us. Isaiah 53 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, speaking of the Messiah, putting him to grief. I get hung up on the word pleased there. Why was it pleasing? It was pleasing because this was the mission. It was pleasing because the cross is the place where the great strands of history come together. God's great love and our great need, God's wrath upon sin, but His mercy willing to take that wrath on Himself and save us from Satan's power. That's what the song rejoices in. Joseph Bailey has written a Christmas poem. It goes this way, Tonight I will sing praise to the Father who stood on heaven's threshold and said farewell to his son as he stepped across the stars. And I will sing praise to the infant eternal son who became a most finite baby who would one day be executed for my crime. Because we have all followed the example of our ancestors. We have all crossed that boundary. We have all rebelled in that way. All have sinned. And so the son dies in our place, and our way of rescue is made. And today he lives. And who was that initial executioner who put Jesus on the cross? It was God himself. This was his plan, to save us all from Satan's power. When we had gone astray, oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take comfort in all that we have in you. Help us to rejoice in the reality that you took on yourself the punishment, that you became yourself the lamb that was slain. And from the foundations of eternity past, you always knew that that would be the mission. We rejoice in that kind of love, and we remind ourselves that because you are who you said you are, That grave couldn't hold you, and you are living today, and every song that we sing in this Christmas time 
Every card that we send, every word that we say, you hear, you witness, you listen. And Lord, we pray that we are able to properly praise you, to give you glory for all that you've done. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.